Fresh Podcast. How you going, Good, mate. How are you? Good, good. Another busy, busy guest we've got on tonight. Yeah. Busy, yeah. Busy, busy. We'll just jump straight into it, eh? So, yeah. I guess waiting. Got a bit of chatting and catching up to do about your latest trip, but... We'll, we'll save we'll, that for uh, another one. That's it, eh? I'll yeah. let you introduce the guest, eh? Yeah, so this week we've got Jake Many from the Australian Reptile Park joining us on the show to talk about breeding Komodo dragons. Jake, welcome back to the show. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Thanks, fellas. Good to um, good to be back. I can't believe how long it's been since I was last on. I don't know where that time's gone. Over a year, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, over a year, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, time's yeah, flown. I just, I just got back from the Cape, so like almost 18 months ago. Oh, yeah, that's gone real quick. Have we been doing it that long? Jesus. Yeah, because Jake was, yeah, yeah. yeah, you come on pretty, you're one of our first guests. Yeah. Come on, so, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's been, been a little while. That's crazy. Quick. Yeah. Oh, mate, well, yeah. Thank you for coming back on, and uh, you almost made me feel bad for not getting you on earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've, all, we've all been busy. It's been um, It's been a very hectic 2022 for everyone, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Full steam ahead, hey. All right, well, Jake, you're obviously here to talk about breeding Komodo dragons because that's got Australia pretty excited. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the Reptile Park's been really successful and that's no doubt due to your your capabilities there. So um, do you want to just give us a little bit of a brief history on what actually uh, came about with the Komodos at ARP? Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess the Reptile Park, you know, it's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, early 1950s, the park started um, as, I guess, an aquarium. It started as um, as an aquarium first and then uh, actually moved from uh, kind of the Umina area up to Wyoming and then and then moved up to Summersby where we are now in 1996. And uh, I guess the reptile parks had a pretty long history with housing and, and displaying dangerous and exotic reptiles. Um, but Komodo dragons weren't really something that um, the park became involved with until about a decade ago. Uh, around 2012, there was a, an import of some dragons in from the United States. And, uh, of course, the, the reptile park was pretty keen to throw their hand up and, and get some dragons uh, here at the park. And we were really fortunate to end up with uh, a young pair. So we actually ended up with with some young dragons, which we were able to, to raise. And, uh, they're, they're still, of course, going strong today. And, uh, yeah, as far as a reptile goes, they're easily my favorite species to work with. They're incredibly rewarding. And, uh, I've been working with these particular dragons, the, the two adults since they're about five years old. So at that stage, the female especially was, was still quite small, maybe just a bit bigger than an, adult male lace monitor yep. and so i've kind of got to see these dragons grow up to an extent and uh and of course become sexually mature within the last few years and uh so to go on and and subsequently breed them uh was a, a pretty massive career highlight for for me certainly i can only imagine i didn't actually know that they were up there with the with the age 10 years old how, how long do yeah, dragons usually live for yeah, so there's a bit of a, a bit of a difference between males and females. Uh, typically in the wild, this is, uh, females will be living to maybe 30 years max, whereas yep. the males, they can be living uh, in excess of 45 years. There's a bit of a, wow. a bit of an age difference there between the, the boys and the girls. 
Uh, the really interesting thing, and, and I guess the alarming thing, is that for pretty well as long as Komodos have been kept in captivity, they haven't been reaching anywhere near their wild lifespan. So wow. even today, yeah, even mm. today, the uh, average captive lifespan for a male dragon is between about 18 and 22 years. So not, not great. Of what's, yeah. of what's in the wild sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. And fortunately, I guess, particularly in probably the last five to ten years, husbandry has come a long way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. for a very, very long time, uh, Komodos were kept fairly poorly in captivity, and we can certainly get into to a few of the issues that we see with, with captive Komodos across the globe. Yeah. So, obviously, relating to... Um, you know, how, how to actually keep them. Can you tell us a little bit about their exhibits and how they've been constructed constructed and designed? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the Komodos were raised off display at the park uh, for the most part. They yeah. only actually went on exhibit to the public uh, in 2018. So just around four years now they've been on display. But in saying that, even prior to when they were on display in, in their building, um, we did walk the dragons every single day. So the public still had that chance to interact yeah. with with the dragons at certain times of the day, but it wasn't like they could go and see a dragon at, at any time. Uh, they just weren't on display just yet. Uh, so the building that, that we keep our dragons in, I mean, I would like it to be larger. I think that's a, a common theme amongst all Komodo keepers. You know, we'd, we'd love for our dragons to have, you know, an entire park to to explore and, and utilize, but it, it's just not the way it works in a, in a mm. zoological facility. But um, we still walk our dragons, so I guess um, from that angle, they do get uh, quite a bit of a bit of exercise. Um, but our building is uh, really well heated; it's it's quite well insulated, and it's heated with hydronic heating in the floor. And then we also have um, a reverse cycle system uh, throughout the entire building. And so essentially what we're aiming for is to keep that building generally between 28 and 32 degrees ambient uh, throughout yep. the day and then only dropping down to about 24 at night. Uh, 24, 25 degrees is about as low as, as we'll let it get. Even in the middle of winter, in the middle of the night, that's about as, as cool as it gets in that building. And so I guess, you know, throughout the year, they're being kept very, very warm. Um, and then, of course, they've got, got hot spots on, on top of that. And then throughout the year, we're also walking them. So inside the building, um, they've got access, of course, to, to artificial UVB. Um, but I've found the best thing, obviously, as is the case with all reptiles, is to be getting them outdoors and getting them in that natural sun and moving, uh, I guess, yeah. is one of the big things for, for dragons, particularly the male dragons. They're incredibly prone to obesity in captivity. And so having them moving around, utilising their muscles, their bones, and doing things that a wild dragon would do, I think has been really beneficial for our pair and I think has certainly probably played a role in some of our success. Uh, I'm, of course, incredibly biased in, in this opinion, but I do think that we have uh, some fairly fit, lean, uh, healthy adult Komodos. And unfortunately, it's it's not an overly common thing to, to see that with captive dragons right around the world. Yeah. So as, as far as the actual exhibits go, like what's the, what's sort of like the furniture and stuff in there and what sort of size are you kind of keeping these guys in? Yeah. So each of the, each of the exhibits is about 80 square meters. 
and the exhibit's divided in two, of course. So outside of the breeding season, we do not house the male and female together. Um, yep. Dragons are a fairly solitary animal in the wild. Of course, I'm sure people have seen them come together communally for, for feeding. You often see, you know, a dozen, two dozen dragons hooking into a, a water buffalo and tolerating each other to, to some extent on the documentaries. But outside of that, they really are solitary. And in our mm. experience, they do not like uh, the company of, of others as, as adults. So we keep the male and female completely separate aside from our pairing events. And basically the exhibits, they have a large creek line that runs through the middle of them. Uh, so each dragon has access to about 5,000 litres of water, which they can certainly get into and, and utilise if they want to. They're not big swimmers. Yeah. Uh, if anything, they'll they'll soak if it's really, really hot in the middle of summer. Uh, but even saying that, the female I rarely see go into the, into the water. She really just drinks from it. Uh, but the male in summer, you know, come January, February, he'll probably be spending uh, an hour or so each afternoon just hanging out in that water. And then uh, there's a whole lot of mock rock features throughout the, the building and kind of, I guess, a little bit of topographic variation, a few mounds and things like that. And then, uh, as I mentioned, they've got a, a hot spot each. Uh, they get up to about 45, 50 degrees in the middle of summer as a basking site. And then uh, aside from that, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, as I said, there's a, a divider down the middle, um, but aside from pairing, uh, the dragons are housed separately. And, of course, there's large viewing windows which the public can see both the male and the female at any point. Yeah. Have you got the UVB directly with the basking lights as well or have you like kind of separated as well? <clears throat> yeah, so at the moment um, we're not utilising T5 with the with the adults. We're just utilising those Osram mercury vapour bulbs, the big 300-watt yep. bulb. Uh, so there is the, the UVB and the um, heat in one, I guess. In one, yeah. Um, but in saying that, I'm not a massive fan of that. I'm really pushing t- toward moving um, toward T5 over the dragons, um, yeah. coupled coupled with heat, because with with those mercury vapor bulbs, even the you know those really expensive German Osram bulbs, you're getting four to five months out of them um, before you start to see pretty steep declines in terms yeah. of their output. So. Um, whilst they've worked well for you know, quite a few years, uh, I would like to, out. yeah, I would like to to steer away from it uh, down the track and move toward using a whole series of of T five tubes coupled with um, infrared heating. Yeah. Did you have to build like a nest box or anything inside of the exhibit as well to cater the female? Yeah, absolutely. So once that female started cycling. Um, and actually, the, the first time she became gravid, we piled a whole bunch of sand in and we actually filled her pond with sand. And we did all these kinds of things to to try and allow that female to nest properly. We, we thought in our minds we were giving her what she wanted. And uh, what actually ended up happening that first year was she scattered the clutch, which was, was pretty devastating and, mm. and was just a massive sign to us that we needed to do better that next year. And so what we did well in advance of the breeding season, about four or five months ahead of time, um, was we constructed a really large uh, cool room nest box. So it's made out of uh, basically 100 mil cool room panel, really well insulated. And that allowed us to provide that female with about five feet of substrate depth. 
Uh, so we piled about two ton of, of substrate into that and uh, all mixed by hand. It was a, it was a huge day, um, <laughs> but we got it in there and um, compacted it all. And we, we put a series of logs throughout the nest box to provide a bit of stability. And um, fortunately that next year, which was, uh, I guess last year, 2021, she, uh, she took to that nest box really nicely and began using it as we would, you know, hope for as we expected her to. And, um, yeah, that, that was of course the year that we got, got the beautiful, uh, large fertile clutch. So just to, before we, we kind of get right down the line into the, the good stuff, um, like when and why did the park actually decide that breeding the dragons would be a good idea? Yeah. So, uh, I guess breeding of large varanids in general, uh, is, something that I think is quite necessary for mature females. Uh, what we've seen historically, incredibly frequently with adult female Komodos, particularly in that seven, eight, nine-year-old age, age range when they're starting to become sexually mature, is they are undergoing vitellogenesis and their follicles are, are swelling with yolk. But then maybe the facility isn't pairing the dragon or that female simply doesn't have access to a male. She's paired on her own or she doesn't have access to suitable nesting conditions. Uh, and that female can very simply and very easily uh, become um, static, you know, follicular stasis. And uh, those follicles can rupture inside the female. And that is almost a, a death sentence for a female Komodo dragon. To my knowledge, it's only been treated once successfully in Komodo dragons, and it is extremely common. In fact, it's it's probably the most common cause of death in captive Komodo dragons right throughout the world. So knowing this and knowing that we had a female that was kind of right at that critical point, that seven, eight, nine-year-old age, what we wanted to do, even if we weren't, you know, incubating eggs or anything. We wanted her to go through that cycle and have access to the male and nest as she normally would just for her own reproductive health. So I guess that was the, the number one priority for us was getting that female laying. And then if we were to um, be allowed to incubate eggs um, going on further from that, then that was just a, a complete bonus. But at the end of the day, it was really all about uh, that female and her own health. People don't realise that quite often lizards can run into that sort of issue where they, they want to lay eggs and, and, you know, they can get egg-bound and have those sorts of problems and stuff. I've had that happen in the past. Yeah, it's it's extremely common. And varanids, whether whether it's a, a brevicorda right through to a Komodo, you know, they all have a very, very similar reproductive biology and they all seem to be extremely prone to reproductive disorders. You know, things yeah. like... Things like Parentes and, and Spencer's monitors. I've had a, a female Spencer's, unfortunately, die of, of this exact thing. So it is really common. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's talked about enough, really, to be honest. Yeah, I actually yeah. didn't even know that. So there you go. That's pretty yeah. cool. It's, um, cool you know, it's, it's, it's a worry with with all species across across the reptiles that we're keeping, but uh, for whatever reason, likely linked to their, I guess, fairly fussy nesting behavior. Varanids yeah. seem to be fairly, um, fairly prone to it. Yeah. Like even my Kimberly Rock monitor when I was designing her enclosure, cause I've only got the one, one girl and, um, I've 
got a nest box in there specifically for her, not obviously expecting anything, but just in there twenty four seven, so at least she can get rid of those eggs if she wants to, and then hopefully I don't run into any issues. But at least she's got the option there. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and something that we do, and this this would be a little trickier with with something like a like a glauti or a king orum or something, some of those smaller species. But what we do with our female Komodo is we'll ultrasound quite frequently, yep. about once every eight weeks typically throughout the year to get an idea of what her follicles are doing. And that way, if she does have, you know, big swollen, yoked up follicles, we can kind of be alerted to that yeah, and yeah. Um, and make a, make a call and make a, a bit of a plan from there. Well, that's probably pretty handy for a zoo to be able to have an ultrasound, but I don't know if that's going to be in my budget. <laughs> to understand that with a little well, unfortunately, it's not, it's not in our budget either. But we're we're really fortunate that we have a a pretty great vet just literally five minutes down the road. So uh, when when the time comes, we can load that female up into the the van and quickly quickly run her down there and and get an ultrasound. It's pretty tough with how thick their their skin is, but mm. Um, over the years of doing it, we've been able to obtain some, some pretty incredible images. And essentially what we're looking for is follicles that are over 30 mil. So, you know, three centimeters in diameter and above. Yeah. Uh, that's when we would be looking to, to probably pair up because ordinarily, you know, throughout the year outside of the breeding season, a Komodo's follicles, or at least our females are sitting down around 10 millimeters. Once we start to see them double and triple, um, we know that, that something's going on. And you can actually sometimes see the yolk within the follicle on the ultrasound. Wow. Um, so that gives us a pretty good indication that it's time to be thinking about popping that, that boy in. So what sort of diet are you actually feeding your dragons? Uh, so with the, with the dragons, of course, they're, they're strictly carnivorous, um, but we try and vary it as much as we possibly can. Um, so we'll give them fish, chicken, goat, deer, pig, uh, beef, eggs, uh, just, just as much as we can, as we can get into them. Uh, the feeding style does vary a little bit throughout the year, uh, and particularly between the male and the female. So with the female, because she is undergoing those reproductive cycles and where seeing a bit of fluctuation in her weight. And at, at times within the year, we are somewhat food cycling her. So we're feeding her a little differently. But ordinarily, the male would get a, a large carcass feed about once every four to five weeks. So pretty yeah. infrequently, but we'll allow him to feed on maybe seven or eight kilos of food in that in that sitting, which I guess is a, is a more natural style for a Komodo yeah. to, be, to be fed. And... It's really great for, for him from an enrichment standpoint, using the, the neck and the head and the forelimbs and really having to work at that large prey item is, um, is a pretty incredible thing for us to watch, but, uh, it's incredible for, for them as well from a, from a welfare perspective. It'd be interesting to see if he's, you know, life expectancy is a little bit longer feeding him that way compared to how a lot of other people kind of feed dragons yeah. in captivity. I'm really hoping so. Um, something that seems to be extremely prevalent is really heavy rat diets. Yeah. Um, particularly in some of the, the zoos in the States, I see that a lot. Lots of dragons getting lots of rodents. 
I can't even remember the last time our male dragon had a had a rodent. They do get quail quite a bit, which is of course a fair bit leaner. So that's a nice kind of small whole food item that I'll that I'll use, but it's pretty rare that that our adult dragons would get a get a rat or a mouse. Um, but in saying that, you know, you, you can still throw it in as a, as a bit of a, a mix up. But yeah. especially for the male, he's primarily getting those large uh, whole carcasses. Yeah. yeah, like so, just to kind of understand that's that's his base diet is that, and then every now and then you'll kind of just give him a tidbit or something as a treat. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll go that length of time. Uh, between feedings usually, but maybe in between he might get the odd small food item here or there. Very random. There's no kind of schedule to it. Yeah. Um, whenever I think that he's, that he needs a feed, I'll, I'll just feed him. Um, I don't really love the idea of, of schedules with, with reptiles, which I know you guys have, have spoken about before. Um, yeah. because drag, particularly Komodos in the wild, mm-hmm. Komodo dragons are, they're scavengers and they're eating anything that they can come across in a very random fashion. And so out in the wild, a male Komodo might be strolling along the, the beach one day and that day he picks up a little little seahorse that's washed up and then the next day he's got a, a water buffalo to gorge on and then he might not feed again for another five months. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. the, just the way it is in the wild. Um, I mean, we don't stretch it out to that extent, but... Yeah, I've I've gone six, seven weeks between between feeds with him before. Do you notice any sort of like temperament differences with him, like when he starts to get a bit hungry? Um, the only thing I really see, which again I think is pretty beneficial, is he he just moves a lot. He he can tell when he's starting to get get a bit hungry. But as far as us going in with him or walking him or anything like that, um, we don't really see any any change in his behaviour. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he he knows when there's there's food there. He knows when there's not food there. So even if he's super hungry, um, if we're down there and we don't have food and we don't smell like food, um, he's he's calm and relaxed. Um, it's only really when you um, take a food item in with the dragons that they switch on. I guess that's one of the big differences that I've noticed between a Komodo and something like a a Lacey. There is that next you know, dial up of, in, of intelligence. Yeah. Um, whereas a, a Lacey is a very frenzied feeder. And if you've got chicken juice all over your hand, you better watch out. Whereas with the dragons, uh, unless there's an actual food item that they can recognize there, they're, they're fine. You can rub a rabbit all over your hand and go and pat them on the head. And because there's no physical rabbit there, they, they don't really react from what we've yeah. seen. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's definitely next level. Yeah. Are you tar- using like target training with them or anything, or they're just that intelligent? They know that you've got food in your hand pretty much. Yeah, we did do a bit of a bit of target training when they were younger. Yeah. Um, I, and, and target training is something that I see a lot with, with captive dragons. A lot of facilities do it. Um, I'm not personally a massive fan of it just because of the way it's it's structured. Um, a lot of zoos are doing it to get their dragons to move, but yep. then you've you've got a dragon that's walking maybe 10, 12 meters, and then you're awarding them with with a fatty food item. Um, most of what I see is is a big rat at the end. So 
it's yeah. kind of a bit a bit counterproductive there. I think um, we much prefer to get our dragons moving through the use of walks, yeah. and that stimulation and that enrichment that they get is their reward. So we don't have to feed them. Um, if that makes sense, that's that's yeah. I guess the the main issue that I see with with target training. I see no issue with it with something that has a little bit of a higher metabolism uh, because you can you know pu- really pump the food into them. But yeah. with an adult large varanid, I don't think it's necessarily the best the best thing in the world, especially if, if that's the tool that you're using to get that animal moving. And when you guys take your dragon for a walk as well, you quite often get them out for like an hour or so as well. It's not like it's just like a quick five-minute lap around the park or anything. It's a... That's all right. But, but yeah, but, you, like you were saying, it's like, a yeah, you're not like just taking that for 15 minutes or so. You're kind of getting it out for an hour or so and it's actually having a decent walk. Yeah, yeah. We take them from their exhibit out into the, the main park area, which is a fairly large space. And this is a, yeah. a shared space with members of the public and uh, kangaroos and birds and there's all kinds of things um, that are out there with the dragon. But, yeah, we get them out for – I try to get them out for between 45 minutes and an hour each day and allow them to to walk as much as they want in that time. I'm not necessarily forcing them to to walk. If they want to go out and walk 20 metres and then stop and bask for the entire time, you know, they're they're allowed to do that. But – what I've found is when we do walk them, um, if we're walking them on those kind of cooler, cloudier days, uh, they'll actually, that's when they get their steps up because they're, they're searching for that, that sun yeah. to sit in. Um, whereas on a, on a really beautiful sunny day like today, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of walking happening. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's definitely, it's cool going up there when they're, um, walking around and it's actually cool to see the size of them, like pretty up, up and close. So. Yeah, well, well, to my knowledge, we're probably the only facility in the world that walks our dragons with the frequency that we do. Yeah. And on the one hand, as we've sp- spoken about, it's really beneficial for the dragon. But yeah, I think from a from a an education standpoint and from a visitor experience perspective, it's it's a pretty incredible thing to be able to get within two or three meters of. Yeah a big male Komodo dragon with no glass, no barriers. Uh, it's it's a really incredible thing for the, the public as well. You must get sick of telling people to get out of the way too. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little bit, yeah. Mo- most people are fairly respectful, especially yeah. when they do see the, the size of particularly the male. Yeah. I think, I think people get a pretty clear idea pretty quickly of what that animal is capable of. Yeah, that's um, intimidating. Oh yeah, you you do still get people that that are just completely naive and and want to walk up there and and pat it right on the face, but yeah, um, that's when we can step in and and the education begins on on what these animals are, are really capable of. Um, yeah, but all but also it's on the other hand, it's it's an example of how placid and and relaxed they can be in the oh, in sure. the right in the right environment. Yeah, no, definitely. Have we got you back now, Luke? No, we can't hear you. <laughs> Have you got like some type of like cooling regime that you're using for these guys when you're getting them ready for the breeding season or if you kind of just keep them at that temperature that they're at all year round? Yeah, so uh, because they are, I guess, an equatorial 
species, they're not yep. really going through a very significant fluctuation in temperature throughout the year. It's yeah. not like us down here in Sydney where we have these extreme fluctuations between winter and summer. Yeah. Um, they have a wet and a dry season, but as far as temperatures go, it's, um, it's pretty consistently warm throughout the year. And so we don't alter temperatures too much. Mm. Um, we do to an extent alter, uh, humidity. So during yeah. summer, we'll, um, we'll mist, mist the exhibit a little bit more frequently just to, to kind of really bump up that humidity. But when it's warmer outside here in, in Sydney, naturally, uh, it tends to, it tends to bump the, the temperature and the humidity up a little bit in the building as well. Um, so we are kind of somewhat relying on, on the external environment as well. Um, yeah. You do get a bit of that natural influence within our building. Um, but as far as actually physically cooling the animals, there's, there's not really any of that. Um, yeah. Something that I will do leading into breeding season with our female is I'll start to food cycle her a bit. So throughout summer, she might get a fairly consistent amount of food and then come, you know, May, uh, May, June, which is when the, the breeding season kind of kicks off. Yeah. Uh, then I'll really start to, to kind of ramp the feeding up a little bit and, um, you, you'll automatically start to see a bit of a change in her behavior. She'll start to, dig a little bit and, and with the, the ultrasound, we'll start to see her follicles starting to, to swell yeah. in, in line with that increase in, in food. So for your misting system, are you just using like misting nozzle throughout the whole roof or are you setting up like a, like a spring class system per se? <laughs> Cause that's so big in there. Yeah. It, it'd be nice to have something that's, that's kind of permanently there and, and we can just run on an auto on an automated system, but yeah. um, unfortunately we don't have anything, anything that fancy. It's, it's typically just done by keepers by hand. Um, yeah. And, you know, I guess, I guess in that respect, it, it is a little bit more random and we can yeah. kind of really control how much water we're putting in, into that exhibit. But yeah, um, yeah, for the most part, it's, it's just done by, by myself usually in an afternoon or something. As I'm finishing up, I'll, I'll give the exhibit a bit of a bit of a spray down, or first thing in the morning, just to just to boost that a bit. But yep. as as I said, when we start to see, you know, especially coming into this time of year, we're starting to experience, I guess, a bit higher humidity throughout the throughout the days. Yep. That certainly um, kind of transfers into the into the building as well. So, how did you actually start with introductions, and what was the courtship like? Yeah, so I guess this was probably something that we were, of course, initially a little bit nervous about. Um, yeah. There's been instances of, of male Komodo dragons killing females during, during pairing events. So, um, I guess it, it is kind of the, on the more extreme end of things with, with throwing two reptiles together. Um, uh, because there is such a, such a size difference. The male dragons, they end up being three to four times the size of the, of the females. So, um, they're capable, they're capable of doing, doing some very severe damage in the blink yeah. of an eye if, um, if things go wrong. And so basically the way we went about it was uh, very carefully. Um, we pretty much let the ultrasounds and what her, you know, what she's doing internally guide what we do in terms of pairing. And so yeah. at this stage, we've got it fairly well dialed in to, to the point where we <clears> won't put those two dragons together unless we are 100% confident that she is, you know, peak vitellogenesis. She's, she's cycling 
right now. Um, and what we found is by doing that, we have these really peaceful kind of uneventful pairings. I think yeah. it's when you don't time it well and when you just throw two dragons in together at a random time without much thought, that's when things can go really badly because the females not, you know, may not be cycling at all. And then you've yeah. got a male there that probably still wants to mate with her. And that female is unreceptive, of course. And, and then the male gets very frustrated and, and annoyed by that. And, uh, that's when things can escalate really, really quickly. Yeah. Do you notice any interest from the male prior to her actually like, you know, having the follicles of that size? Like, can you see him pacing? And because obviously their enclosure is pretty well joined. Like, do you see yeah. interest in him before that? Yeah. There's shared airspace between the two exhibits. So they can certainly smell each other throughout the, yeah. throughout the year. And what we notice, not so much before she starts cycling, but Generally, once she starts cycling, but before we've started pairing, yeah, we'll notice a shift in the male's behavior as well. So he'll start to pick up the activity level a bit. And one thing we notice a lot when we're out on our walks with the boy is he'll start to randomly just avert his hemipenes and he'll actually, um, I don't really know the best, the best way to put this, but he'll, uh, he'll start to leak in the, uh, <laughs> in the walks and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see everything. We'll see him going through that process and, yeah. and we can see quite clearly that he's, um, he's, he's ready to go and he wants to, wants to get in there with that female. So yeah, there's certainly some things that we see with the male, um, that also indicate that it, it's probably time to be pairing fairly soon. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that in any of the smaller varanids that I've kept. I've seen, like, you know, scent marking and stuff by them, but not not to that extent. Yeah, I think um, I've, I've never actually seen it myself when he's in the exhibit. Like, if I'm just watching him through the glass or something, I've never just seen him pop a hemipene. It's yeah. only when he's actually out walking around and, and during the breeding season he gets pretty fired up and he really picks up the pace so i'm not sure if overstimulated it's as well yeah, yeah if it's that process of him you know walking and getting fired up and then it, it just happens and because we're there with him right next to him we we see it mm. um, he, he could be doing it in the exhibit as well but um yeah i've only ever seen it when we've when we've got him out on a walk um, but yeah obviously once we once we see that it's a pretty good indication that that it might be go time. Yeah. So that being said, you obviously monitor their matings hundred percent of the time as well. Yeah. So we'll, um, we'll generally take the mail. The way we generally do it is we'll take the mail out for a walk first thing in the morning at about maybe eight, nine o'clock. And we'll allow him to walk around the park for a bit and burn off some, some energy and, and let some steam out. And then we will introduce him back into the into the female's exhibit so instead of taking him back into his own exhibit as we would typically do after a walk we just allow him into the female's um exhibit and then we'll yeah supervise them we generally try and do it fairly remotely um, we'll have the exhibit closed so the public aren't aren't involved and they're not um you know distracting him or anything like that they have full privacy and we'll just very remotely and very discreetly uh, monitor their progress but nine times out of ten now with the with the timings of the pairings that we do we'll see copulation begin within 30 seconds to a minute of that of that yep. introduction 
they tend not to um not to muck around. That male just climbs straight in, straight on top of her, and um, begins scratching at her at her tail almost immediately. And how long are they copulating for? Is it quick, or do they like kind of lock up for a while? Or yeah, so so they'll mate throughout the day many times. Yeah, um, generally they will physically you know go through the process of copulation for about maybe three to five minutes, yeah. and then they'll have a a break of maybe like 20 minutes to half an hour, and then they'll go again. Um, but pretty much the entire time their tails are intertwined, and when they're not physically mating, um, they're just laying next to each other, barely motionless, and then all of a sudden the male will begin scratching again, and they'll mate a few minutes, break again, and uh, it just kind of goes on like that throughout the day. Uh, we don't leave them together overnight. We'll pull the male out at the end of the day just because we want to be there if something were to go wrong. Yeah. Um, but generally by the time that they're mating, we're fairly confident that they're getting along. Nothing's really going to go wrong from this point. Um, but we still, we still keep a close eye on them. We'll check on them every, you know, hour, two hours. And, uh, yeah, at the end of maybe six or seven days, that female's certainly had enough of that male and uh, she'll begin to, to let him know. And that's when we'll cease the, cease the pairings for the, the season. So how, how long after the mating occurred, could you see developmental changes in the female? Did she start like basking unusually or any sort of other signs that she was obviously progressing? Yeah. So once, once mating finishes, um, we don't generally see too much change, uh, until about the two week mark after about two weeks post mating. Um, we'll see her ovulate, which is, is extremely obvious. She blows up very taut around the abdomen. There's no lateral, lateral skin folds and uh, she looks completely miserable for a day or so uh, while she's going through that process. And she also refuses feed during this, this time. So from what we've noticed throughout the entire process, from pairing to being gravid, uh, her ovulation day is pretty much the only time throughout the whole thing that she'll refuse food. So if we're seeing that, we can, you know, record a, a fairly confident ovulation. And, um, after that is when we start to, to really see those signs of a, of a typical Gravid Varanid, she'll start to, to really swell and look quite gravid and uh, the digging really, really ramps up. So within that kind of last two weeks of her being gravid prior to egg laying, uh, she's almost focusing on nothing else aside from those, those burrows that she's, um, that she's constructing and working on. And, uh, it's, pr- it's pretty incredible to watch them go through the, the process and just how long and how much energy they put into into the process. Um, just to give you a bit of an example, uh, last year while she was, while she was heavily gravid, she was spending between six and eight hours in the nest box, um, almost wow. consistently digging throughout that, throughout that time. So the amount of energy and time and you know, meticulousness that they put into the, their nesting is pretty incredible to, to witness. Do you have a camera in the nest box or anything or? Or you just kind of, you do? Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, before she kind of starts really using it, um, we'll get a, a fairly decent um, camera in there so we can monitor her remotely um, because, of course, at, at that time, 
um, you really want to minimize disturbance on a, on a nesting female monitor. And so we don't, of course, we don't walk her while she's gravid or anything like that. Um, we rarely even go into the exhibit. We'll just monitor her with the, the cameras and, uh, keep an eye on her that way. But, um, yeah, she's pretty much allowed full, um, security and privacy during that, that time period. It makes so much sense because the last thing you'd want is, you know, these people looking at you or, you know, keepers coming in and fiddling around and stuff like that. That's just, you don't want to put her off her A game. No, exactly. And, um, and that was something that I was really pedantic about, um, last year, especially because the, the pressure was, was really on to get, to get a nicely laid clutch. Um, we didn't, we didn't touch the nest box. We didn't mess with, substrate or add moisture or, you know, do anything different um, that would potentially throw that female out because I think particularly with the the um, burrowing monitors like Panoptes, uh, Komodos, they're very fussy um, and it doesn't take much to, to really change things and, and disturb things and potentially ruin a, a whole season. Yeah. Um, out of out of your own, um, you know, your own interest and and thinking that you you're doing the right thing. Are you closing the exhibit off as well during that time period? Yes, yeah. So last year we we were kind of I guess lucky in the in the fact that it also aligned with us being closed for for COVID. So yeah, uh, yeah. The there was no public in the park at all. Oh, that's good. That's, that was kind of handy then, I guess. Yeah, worked worked it certainly worked out well. So, um, how far were the eggs actually laid down inside of the nest box? Like, was it right to the floor of it? Yeah. So, as I said before, the nest box uh, it was about a bit over half filled. Um, so, yeah, about four to five feet of substrate is what she had to to utilize. And yeah, the day that that she laid, she spent a long, long time in that, in that nest box. She went down into this particular chamber that she'd been working on for, for several days and then turned around and, and kind of poked her head back out. And, uh, yeah, the, the eggs were essentially laid right at the bottom of that, just above the, the heat. So we were supplying heat from, from below. Um, and yeah, that's exactly where she, she chose to lay. And by using a, a temp gun and, and, Kind of getting some, some readings around the, around the nest box. It was pretty much almost bang on 30 degrees where she, where she elected to lay. Wow. It always amazes me how they can kind of just like probe around with their noses and actually figure out the no. exact right temperature. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And that's something we saw her doing a lot. Um, she would just dig a little bit, pop her snout in the, in the hole, come back out make a few changes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I can't even fathom how they, how they work that out and get that so accurate. So obviously you had to go in and dig the eggs out. Did you decide to remove the female while this was happening? Yeah. So the, the eggs were laid or well, the eggs began being laid at about four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon. And the whole process, the laying process took a few hours. Uh, it was probably about 7.30 or 8 o'clock by the time that she uh, finished up and we could see her actively starting to, to backfill the, the nesting chamber. 
And so the last thing we wanted to do at that point was, was go in there and, and start mucking around with her and disturbing her. So we made the decision to allow her to completely backfill the, the nest box to a point yep. where she was comfortable to leave it on her own. And so that's what we did. Um, I guess the issue was, was that that process of her backfilling and getting to a stage where she was happy, uh, took about five hours. So we didn't actually get into the nest box, uh, until, the early hours of the morning, I think it was maybe one thirty in the morning by the time we, we were able to get in there um, and lock her. We locked her off in, in kind of a separate airlock area so she couldn't she couldn't see what was happening. And yep. then we were able to get in there and, and do the excavation and, uh, yeah, retrieve those eggs. So with, with, with that being said, did you kind of like backfill it again on her so she could maybe not tell that the eggs have been disturbed? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the the actual process of me getting in there and collecting all the eggs took about probably 45 minutes, a bit longer than I would have liked, but there was a lot of eggs and and they're they're fairly large, of course, very valuable eggs. So we didn't want to rush anything, but we did at the same time. We wanted to, to minimize that disturbance on her. And then I did kind of semi backfill in, where she where she'd laid and then we allowed the female access back to the box and the first thing we noticed her doing was not looking stressed not looking like there was anything that had just happened um she just went straight back into into backfilling more so uh for us to to see that behavior and to see her spend the next eight ten hours continuing to backfill uh, was a was a really positive thing because I was certainly a bit a bit worried that she would get in there and and look really stressed and and would be work, trying to work out what's just happened, um, but she seemed to resume a fairly normal behaviour fairly quickly. Yeah, it might have been a bit different if you removed the whole nest box, you know, and she couldn't smell that scent from the eggs, whereas she still thought they were in there, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she she still had had the same substrate, the same yeah. nest box. Nothing had really changed except for the fact that there was there was no eggs in there anymore. Yeah. So, how did you actually set up the eggs for incubation, and what temperatures did you use? Uh, so I I set the uh, eggs up in like ten liter systema tubs. Uh, so they're a pretty massive egg. The largest one was hundred ninety two grams. Whoa. And we're talking, yeah, it's a big egg. And we're talking about an egg that's probably 10, 11 centimeters long. Uh, so they make, you know, they make a lace monitor egg look like a little, little tic tac. So, uh, <laughs> extremely, extremely large. And so I set them up in 10 liter systema tubs, uh, four eggs to a tub. And then, uh, they were just set up on, on a one to one vermiculite mix and a few holes in the, in the lid. And that was that was about it, really. There was nothing too too fancy that went into the incubation. Uh, I just wanted to to utilize the same method that I do for for any egg that I incubate. Really, um, the the main thing that I did slightly different was I wanted to set up two of the eggs up over over water, suspended over water, um, because to my knowledge, Komodo eggs had never been um, incubated using the, the suspended method before. And I wanted to see what would what would happen there, and it was quite interesting. The the results, basically, what I saw was that those eggs that were set up over over water, they developed, but certainly didn't thrive in comparison to the eggs that were 
were buried in the in the vermiculite. So I think moving forward, um, we would certainly utilize vermiculite. It seemed to work really, really well. We had great a great hatch rate from the eggs that we took full term. We had no issues with with the offspring, you know, being able to to leave the eggs on their own or anything like that. And so I think just that standard, you know, good old one to one vermiculite ratio worked worked fairly nicely. Awesome. Did the um did the female recover really well from dropping her eggs? Uh, she did. She did. She certainly looked pretty average following. Um, she actually yeah. lost about, about five kilos, uh, through the, Jeez. through the process. So she looked pretty skinny. Uh, the, the cl- clutch mass, the total clutch mass of the eggs themselves was, was over three kilos. So, wow. uh, there's, there was a lot <laughs> of volume that, that disappeared there. And she did look pretty average for a few, for a few weeks, very skinny in the tail, lots of, um, loss of condition in the, in the rear limbs, especially. And, uh, yeah, she, she looked pretty average, but fortunately we were able to kind of slowly get the, get the food back into her. And, um, she, she recovered really, really nicely. Um, one thing that we did do, um, was we took it, took it slow with her. The last thing we wanted was for her to drop this huge clutch of eggs and, and lose five kilos. And then all of a sudden get this smorgasbord of food and, three, four weeks later, start cycling again. Yeah. Um, we, we are purposely trying to limit this female to laying one clutch of eggs per year. Yeah. And so we really kind of slowly put that weight back on her over a period of probably six to eight months as opposed to having her lay and then going, here's all the food you could ever possibly want, recover really quickly and have her, you know, go through this potentially pretty, pretty life-threatening process again. Yeah. Which is essentially what they would do in the wild as well. And that's another factor that could factor into them not living as long in captivity as well. You know, people trying to double clutch them and do that kind of thing. 100%. 100%. So can you walk us through the kind of process that, um, you know, you being a zoo uh, has to go through with, you know, how many eggs you're actually allowed to incubate full term? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it... um. I guess it depends on the species and, and I guess the value of that species and the significance of that species within zoos as to how regulated they are. And with Komodos being that there's only, you know, less than, less than 20 individuals in the whole country and they're a large, um, you know, very well known, very well managed exotic species, the, the regulations around keeping them and breeding them are fairly strict. And there is strict guidelines that we have to follow. And there is, um, certainly regulations around, uh, incubation and, and, you know, the raising of, of offspring. And so essentially at the moment, there's, uh, four pairs of Komodos in the country. That's it. Only four. And they're located at the reptile park, of course. And then there's a pair at Australia Zoo. There's a pair at Ballarat Wildlife Park. And there's also a pair now at Adelaide Zoo. And I guess the goal for the, the Komodo Dragon program within Australia is to have representation of all of those four pairs over the next decade or so. Yeah. And so what that meant for us as the facility that, that was successful for the first time was we had to be really smart about how we deal with these eggs, where we're placing the offspring, what we're doing there, because we could very easily 
hatch 15 Komodos and then flood the entire region, zoological region, with our dragons. And then yes, there was yep. no no space left in zoos for these uh, other genetics and things like that. Yeah. And so even though we had uh, 15 fertile eggs in the end, uh, we actually only incubated uh, three of those uh, through to, to full term. And that was a number that we agreed on with the, the species coordinator and everyone was, was happy with that. And that meant that, you know, down the line, hopefully when these other facilities also have success with Komodos, we can have a really robust, vigorous, genetically diverse population of, of Komodos within the country. So is it, is it kind of like, you know, you've, you've hatched three out, you've got another three facilities that have pairs, so then you can kind of give each facility one dragon and then potentially get another one back from those facilities when they breed theirs, just to kind of like bulk up stock? Yeah, there could, there could potentially be a little bit of, little bit of trading, um, going on down the line. Uh, for now, the goal is to have offspring produced at those other, other facilities so that all yep. of the young ones coming through over the next decade are all fairly, uh, diverse. That's, that's kind of the goal. Cause at the moment, um, the, the Komodos within Australia aren't overly, um, aren't overly diverse. And so the goal is to, uh, increase that as much as as we can, and something that I would really love to see in the next five or six years is is potentially a, a few more adults, uh, different yeah. different bloodlines coming in, uh, so that we can further increase those those genetics within the country. Do you actually have to get permission to breed them, or is it like once you've got permission to keep them, you can kind of, if you're lucky enough, breed them? Yeah, so so the recommendation within the the program is for all female Komodos to be paired, yeah, just for their own reproductive success. And then once a facility gets a clutch, then that clutch will be reported, and then from there the decision will be made on whether that whole clutch, uh, you know, is is discarded or whether four eggs are taken through or two or one. It all just yeah. it's a very case by case thing. So how long, how long was the actual incubation process? Uh, long. <laughs> it was a long, long wait. Um, exactly seven months. Uh, so wow. yeah, two, 210 days exactly, uh, for the first one to, to pip. And, uh, of course that was a, a pretty incredible moment. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of work that went into them throughout the incubation. It was just basically, a weekly checkup, usually done by me. I would, I would air the eggs, um, you know, maybe, maybe fan them a little bit, check that there was no signs of, of mold or, or anything of that nature. And then the eggs would go back into the, the incubator. And that was, that was about it really. Um, but yeah, after 210 days, we saw our, our first slit in the egg. And, uh, the following day we had a, a fully emerged hatchling komodo which was um easily one of the the best moments of my life i'll i'll, I'll <laughs> say that for, for sure um there's there's few things that have have made me happier than seeing that that little dragon running around the the systema and then uh two days later the the second and third egg uh, hatched so yeah within within three days we had a 100 percent hatch rate with the with the eggs that we 
chose to to take full term. What sort of size are they hatching out at? Well, I mean, looking back on them now, compared to compared to what they are now at seven months old, the hatchlings now look tiny, but they're they're big. They're about forty centimeters and <sighs> uh, about a hundred and fifteen odd grams on, on hatching. So they're they're a large lizard straight out of straight out of the egg. Big big heads on them. Yeah, and they've kind of grown into their heads a little bit now. Um, but yeah, compared to, to what they are now, I look back on them and, and they look tiny. Um, and of course they're just incredibly vibrant and colorful and stunning at that, at that age. They still are, but they have already lost a lot of their, their vibrance as, as juvenile monitors tend to do fairly quickly. How was your reaction when you first saw them? Were you by yourself or did you have anybody to kind of celebrate with? <laughs> No, I had, I had my full, full team, um, there. Um, we kind of wanted to, to wait and share that, share that moment together. We had a pretty good in, you know, pretty good idea that that hatchling would be, would be out that morning. And so we all kind of got to work at probably like 5.30 or 6 a.m. just because we couldn't, <laughs> couldn't wait any longer. And, um, yeah, we just kind of checked the incubator, incubator together and, and pulled that, that dragon out. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty special moment, to be honest. Um, particularly considering that there was so much unknown throughout the whole, the whole thing. You know, no one had ever bred Komodos in, in Australia before. So there was a lot of, a lot of trial and error. And it was, you know, a few years in the, in the making, really. Um, so to kind of have that, that hatchling there is that culmination of all your, all your effort and hard work and, you know, days spent filling nest boxes and, you know, all that stress involved. It was, it was pretty incredible. That's it must have been like a hard decision on which eggs, the three eggs you were going to keep out of the 15 though. It, it was, it certainly was. There wasn't a whole lot of variation between the eggs. It wasn't like yeah. we had a whole bunch that looked a bit average and then there was a couple of standouts. All the eggs almost looked identical to one another. So it was very much just a, on an eeny, meeny, miny, mo um, yeah. situation, just had to had to pick. I, I ended up picking the eggs that were maybe just that little bit wider and that little bit larger, and it, yeah, it got um, yeah, it, it, there wasn't much in it towards towards the end there. So you, you didn't actually choose any of the ones from uh, that trial though. You were doing over water. You chose the ones straight from the vermiculite batch. Yeah, correct, correct. I, yeah. I didn't want to risk anything with those those ones that were suspended. Um, just yeah. to give you a bit of an idea, over about three to four months, which is about how far we took the the eggs into incubation before we before we did the the cull, there was uh, about a sixty to seventy gram weight increase in the eggs on vermiculite, and the eggs wow. that were suspended over water only put on about ten grams. So there was a really Ooh. substantial weight difference between the the eggs over water and on vermiculite. And That's the only crazy. real thing I can put that down to is that these lizards are laying their eggs very deep in the ground. Surely contact moisture has to has to play yeah. a significant role in their their development. And when I Definitely. think I think when you take them away from that, you know, you take that opportunity away from them to be buried or at least sitting in a in a moist substrate it can probably affect their growth pretty pretty dramatically yeah, wow. 
How have the hatchlings actually been to raise up? Have they been enjoyable? Oh, yeah. Very, very enjoyable. Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I mean, I'd obviously spoken to keepers in the US and and Europe that had bred Komodos before, and uh, all they had to say about the hatchlings is is how amazing they are to raise. Um, I've you know I've I've bred things like like lace monitors before, and that's a species that that doesn't want to be seen for the first six months of its life. Um, very skittish, very shy. Certainly doesn't want to be touched. And then we had these juvenile komodos straight out of the egg, crawling up onto our shoulder and <laughs> climbing on our head. Um, even at that that small size, they have all the all the confidence and all the um, inquisitiveness of a of an adult. Yeah. And um, yeah, nothing's really changed since. They're a fair bit larger now. I wouldn't want to. They're getting to the stage now where I certainly wouldn't want to cop a bite from one. And their claws are, are quite gnarly these days. Um, I don't really like them climbing on my head anymore. It, it hurts quite a bit, but um, they're still just as just as quiet. Um, you know, they even today I had them had them out for a bit. Um, we are trying to work with them a fair bit just to just to <clears> keep <throat> them like that. Yeah, but so far we've had had zero issues with with them. Um, the only thing we've had to do is separate one of the the juveniles out onto its own. I've got a sneaking suspicion that we've got two boys and a girl and there was that that smaller individual that was kind of being a, a bit dominated by the the larger two which I think are the boys and so we've just taken her um out and she's got her own her own space now where she can she can you know bask in in peace and and not be you know pushed around by by those larger individuals but those other two are, are still in together going well are they quite arboreal when they're young yeah pretty well exclusively arboreal yeah they very rarely touch touch the ground although i have noticed now as it is starting to to warm up i mean obviously they've been kept fairly hot throughout the the entire time but now that the the ambient in our main reptile room is is starting to creep up that that little bit more right in the middle of the day they will go to go to ground and they will they will shelter and we've got a whole bunch of uh, cork slabs and and that kind of thing in the in the enclosure, and they'll um they'll go low in the enclosure when it's when it's really warm, um, but throughout the morning and throughout the afternoon, they're pretty much up in the in the branches basking. Yeah. What sort of enclosures have you got them in? Like you know, size wise, or or how have you got them set up? Yeah, so from from hatching, well, they actually spent the first three weeks of their life in the incubator. Um, we've got a, a, a pretty large incubator that we are able to fit quite nicely a um, 60 by 45 by 45 exoterra into. And so we um, we were able to keep them in that uh, just on, on some paper towel. They did have a little bit of unabsorbed yolk. So we wanted to just allow them that little bit of extra time within the incubator under semi-sterile conditions to, to absorb that. But they had their first feeds in, in that incubator and, and they, you know, began basking and, and doing everything as normal. And then once they had that, that little period of time to, to kind of settle into life, then we moved them straight into a six by three by two foot, uh, PVC enclosure, which was made by, um, Tyson. And, uh, that just really allowed us, um, you know, a lot of room to do some some cool things in terms of lighting and 
and give the dragons a little bit of space to get away from one another if they wanted to. But pretty much what we saw right from the get-go was them hanging out together. They would bask together, sleep together. Uh, they were they were very, very cute. Um, they're a little bit more independent now, um, but still the the two boys that are in together, they'll, they'll still spend a lot of time, you know, right, right with each other. That's interesting. Mm. And have you been essentially feeding them a similar diet to what you've been feeding the parents? Have you been trying to avoid rodents and kind of keeping on lean meats? Um, no, not so much with the, with the juveniles. We're, um, we're feeding them a lot more frequently and obviously they're going through a fairly ex- extreme period of, of growth at the moment. So, um, yeah, we're feeding them at the moment probably every two to three days and they'll get, yeah, they'll get mice, they'll get rat, um, quail, mince, uh, insects. Invertebrates was one that I'd, I'd heard from a lot of people that Komodos often turn their nose up at. But just with a little bit of scenting with, um, with like a brained buzzy or something, um, we were able to get them to, to start taking inverts pretty, pretty nicely. So at this stage, they've accepted, uh, crickets, woodies, earthworms. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll try and mix it up as, as much as we possibly can. Um, but obviously they're, they've got a really high metabolism at the moment and they're, they're putting all that food they're taking in just into, into growth. Yeah, so not much of a worry there, really. No, no. Um, and some, something we wanted to do with the with the juveniles was take a really modern approach to to lighting and heating them. Um, so what we do, we have all their lights, I guess, staggered throughout the throughout the day. So first thing in the morning, we'll have like a just a sixty five hundred k grow light come on, just to kind of wake them up, put a bit of light into the into the exhibit. And then after that, there'll just be kind of a, a cycle of, of heat coming on and UV and um, we've got multiple T5 tubes set up so that the UVI increases throughout the day. So in the middle of the day over their basking side, it's getting up to about UVI 7, 8, so pretty high. Yeah. Um, and they will actively sit in that quite quite happily and temperatures up to about 55, 60 degrees as well. So I guess at the moment we're, we're keeping them fairly similar to what you would any of the, any of the smaller kind of rock monitor species in terms of, of heating and lighting. Um, yep. but we've just got them, got them set up in a kind of a more arboreal fashion. Um, and the other thing I did prior to them hatching was I went, went through and, and made some, uh, mock rock walls on, on all three sides of the, the enclosure. So they can literally utilize the entirety of the of the space aside from the the doors um, they can climb on every single other surface within that within that enclosure and um, being so arboreal they you know they'll hang off the walls and jump from one wall onto another and climb across the screen and yeah they're they're super active little buggers that sounds awesome and did you have anything else that you wanted to touch on about these guys those Sounds like a massive success for the park. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know it's been big for the big for the park. It's it, it's probably been a little while now since we kind of bred something new. Um, mm. You know, a, a, a little while back there was there was lots of firsts. You know, the, the reptile park was the first place to breed uh, king cobras in Australia, and we've you know in the past we've bred things like uh, green anacondas and 
um, you know, a whole a whole series of of exotics, Mozambique spitting cobras back in the day, whole host of weird things. But um, you know, of course, as the as the decades go by, it kind of gets harder and harder to be the the first at something. And so, mm. you know, to be able to to crack these these komodos and and really dial them in to the point now where I'm you know fairly confident that that female will be going year after year uh, is is a pretty exciting thing. And it's it's it certainly wasn't accomplished on my own. Um, you know, I had the assistance of people like Dan Rumsey and, and Brandon Gifford and Sam Herman, you know, all really great herb keepers that I've worked with over the years. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of advice and a lot of uh, information very freely given from some really experienced keepers in the in the United States and, and Europe as well. So, um, yeah, it, it was certainly not something that I did on my own, but um, it was certainly probably one of the biggest, biggest accomplishments for me, um, professionally at least. And I think it's going to be a pretty hard one to, uh, to top, that's for sure. Well, mate, well, congratulations on yeah. it and congratulations to the team there for doing it because it's, um, yeah, it's been exciting to watch the little snippets, um, obviously over on social media. And I, I was lucky enough to go and see the eggs in the incubator with you. And that was pretty cool to see them in the flesh. Yeah, the um, you know, obviously the eggs were were cooking for a fairly long time. So there was a you know a fair few people that that got to see them while they were um while they were incubating. But um, yeah, you'll have to you'll have to come back up and and see the babies before they get too big. Um, <laughs> now now they're up around the the seventy centimeter total length mark. Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, and probably. <clears throat> rapidly approaching half a kilo i haven't weighed them in in a little while but they're um they're certainly getting getting some size to them we do have plans in the next probably fortnight uh to get them out of the out of the enclosure they're in and into like a four by four by three meter um exhibit in the in the reptile house so that'll just enable them even more opportunities and, and more space to either get away from each other if they, if they want to and, um, you know, really utilize their, their climbing ability. We're going to perch it, perch it out and, and, um, hopefully it'll be a, a really cool thing for people to kind of come and see a, a young Komodo hanging out on a, on a branch at kind of eye level. Um, cause it, you know, it's not something that most people are, are ever going to do. They're not going to, you know, most people aren't going to hop on a plane and, and go to Komodo or, or Flores and, and learn about Komodos that way. So let alone see a juvenile too. It, exactly. Yeah. You know, juvenile, juvenile varanids are bloody hard to, to see, um, Komodos, wild Komodos included. So, um, yeah, for people to be able to see the, the world's largest lizard at, at kind of that early stage is a pretty, a pretty unique thing. Oh, that'd be amazing. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely have to come up and have a look. That um, sure. sounds like a welcome invitation. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, mate. Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and having yeah. a chat to us. This has um, been really interesting just to sit back and listen to, to be honest. It's been yeah. very fascinating. I've, I love monitors through and through, so to hear about the big monitors, it's uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah, and I, I guess that's that's one of the things with with Varanids is, you know, even though a Komodo dragon is however many times larger than an Aki or, or a Gilanai or, or a Brevi, 
their reproductive biology and a lot and a lot of the principles and and you know trial and error that we went through and, and applied with the the komodos it can all be it can all be transferred across to to a lot of the the smaller ones as well they're all kind of very similar in the way that they they reproduce so i think it's um it's been a big learning curve for for me but i think um a really valuable one that we can apply across the, the board across a whole bunch of of herb species that's awesome awesome Alrighty, guys well without any further ado thanks again for coming on jake and thanks, we'd man. like to say a a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Make sure to follow the NPR network on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. Myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. Good night, everyone. (laughs) Good night. (laughs)